Welcome to Faith Sermons and Studies with Pastor Joe DeVitro. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Jude, the book of Jude. I tell you, Jude 1, but there is only one. But we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 in the book of Jude this morning and uh, introduce our series on unlocking Jude. Contend for truth is the theme of this book. Contend for truth. And uh, we have, in our world today, a definition crisis. Because the question that everyone wants to ask is what? What is truth? We want relative truth today. We don't want absolute truth. We want relative truth. We want truth to be what we perceive it to be, or what we think it should be, not actually what truth is. And Jude is going to issue to us a a demand, a command, to contend for the truth. And by the way, the book of Jude is inspired by what person? The Holy Spirit of God. So the Holy Spirit of God this morning wants every believer to be contending for truth. And now he's going to define how we contend for that. He's going to tell us how we should contend for that. And he's going to tell us to what end we should contend for that. But we are commanded to contend for truth this morning. So I want to reread these two verses for us this morning. And intentionally, I want you to look for the three things that are listed twice here. There there are two sets of threes, and we're going to look at those this morning as our text. But it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept in Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And we're going to take that verse that takes about a minute to read and make it 35 minutes long. Right? Because that's what's in here. There's a lot in here. And many times when we read a book, we skip over the introductions. And we want to say, all right, let's get right to the good stuff. Well, I hate to break it to you, but the good stuff's in the introduction. Because we're going to find out a lot of things through observation this morning just by looking at these verses. And um, by the end of the message, I hope that as we exegete the passage here, as we go through this book, verse by verse, word for word, phrase for phrase, I hope that as we go through this book, that it's going to help you prepare for the false teachers. It's going to help you see the false teachers that are already in our world. So let's, let's, uh, let's start into this book. And as we do that, I, I'm reminded of a story that um, was shared several centuries ago. There was an emperor in Japan who gave a command or commissioned a man to paint a beautiful picture of a bird. And the, the, this artist was phenomenal at his drawing. We got phenomenal artists in town today doing chalk drawings down on Sinclair Lewis. And uh, so I thought this would be apropos to our time because we appreciate art even today to some degree. And uh, this artist is commissioned to paint this bird by the emperor of, of Japan. And uh, several months pass by. Eventually an entire year passes by and the emperor still doesn't have his painting. So one day the emperor decides, you know what? Today's the day. I'm going to go find out what's going on. So the emperor goes to the man's house and he demands... The artist paint the painting. So the artist goes and gets an easel. He gets a blank canvas and he begins to paint. And in less than 30 minutes, he hands a beautiful masterpiece to the emperor. The emperor, exasperated by what he sees, 
says the logical next question, right? What took you so long? The artist says, I'm glad you asked that question, Emperor. Would you come back into my studio? And as the Emperor walks through the studio, he sees drawings of feet, drawings of eyes, drawings of beaks, drawings of heads, drawings of wings, drawings of feathers. The Emperor begins to realize what the artist is about to tell him, right? In order to create a masterpiece, there was a lot more work that went into it than simply drawing a bird. I had to know how to draw the individual parts of the bird to create the masterpiece. In order for him to complete the painting, he had to do the work to see the masterpiece. And in order for us to understand the book of Jude, the masterpiece that is God's word, then we need to do the work to figure out how in the world we can decide or determine or interpret what the scripture says. And, and unfortunately today in our world, a lot of pastors and a lot of people don't want to know how the pudding's made. They just want to eat the pudding. They don't know what the ingredients are. And today we're going to get into the ingredients of God's word. We're going to dig in to the nuances of God's word, the words that were given to us so that we can know exactly what the word of God says. So let's investigate this short little book. Let's dig into this short little book together. We're going to look at two verses this morning. And as we're getting into it, I, I want you to remember our OIA, right? What does OIA stand for? O is observation. I is interpretation. And A is application, all right? Anybody who teaches the Bible anytime has to do these three things. You have to observe what the passage says. You have to interpret what it means in context. And then you need to apply it. A teacher that just gives you information just gives you information. You're like, so what? A person that gives you their opinion, but not with a context, you're like, so what? It's their opinion. But when you have God's word observed in its original text, interpreted in its context, and applied from the observation and interpretation, you have what God wants you to actually do. And that's our goal this morning, is to find out what does God actually want us to do, what does Scripture actually say, and how hard is it really to find out what it says. So it's really not that hard. And let's, let's dig into that principle together. So this epistle, doing a little background work, I did a little homework for you. This epistle is written after the death of Peter. Anybody know what year Peter died? 68 AD, and it's written before the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem, which happened in what year, FBI students? 70, right? 70 AD. So we have a very precise window in which the book of Jude is written. It's written between 68 and 70 AD. We also know that this is a time in which there is still sacrifices being given. There's still the temple is still erected. So there is false teaching. There is a debate going on about what truth is. Is it Jesus Christ and him resurrected? Is it the altar? Is it the gods of the Romans? Is it other? What is truth today? Where do we find truth at? And this is the battle for truth that's going on in the Christian world at the time in which this book is written. Today, we live in the same time where people are pursuing truth. So by observation, we can kind of put these things together so far. The most difficult battles, though, for truth, we're going to find out, 
usually for the church do not come from the outside, but they come from the inside. So we're looking at attacks against the church from the inside. These consequences are far more devastating to the work of God than any attack from the outside. So Jude is going to write to us to tell us to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith in which you have been given. So let's, uh, let's begin to look at the text. So we know it's written by who? Jude. And we got some information given to us about who Jude is. So right off the bat, we know the name Jude or Judas. Only six people in the entire Bible have this name. Only six people in the Bible were ever referred to as Jude or Judas. So this Jude is identified for us. And the first marker of identity that we have is that Jude is identified as one of the brothers of James. So we find out, first of all, that there's going to be a leader. There has to be a leader in contending for the faith. And the leader who's going to tell us about the leader is going to be Jude. And this Jude is the, identified as the brother of James. He's not the apostle. So we're not talking about the apostle James. But he's also the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. So we know he's a pastor. We know he's a brother of James. He's not an apostle. But we do know another significant fact given to us from the text. He is the half-brother of who? Jesus. Now many times we want to think about Jesus' family and we want to think, well, they didn't believe who he was. But sometime after the passage of scripture where his brothers come and try to persuade that, every, that Jesus is insane and you need to come with your family. To this point here where Jude is writing this, somewhere between there, after the resurrection, even Jesus' family believed who he was. And they went into ministry for Jesus Christ. This is the half-brother of Jesus and the brother of James. So we have some pretty good markers here to figure out who he is. But look at how Jude refers to himself as the half-brother of Jesus. Words matter, right? Jude, a servant. Couldn't he say a half-brother? Couldn't he say I'm a half-brother of Jesus? Why did he say servant? He's not referring to himself here by earthly means. He's talking about a spiritual relationship. He's not just my half-brother, he's my Lord. James is putting himself in the role of, the Greek word here is doulos. Anybody knows what doulos means? It means slave or servant. I'm a slave to my half-brother, Jesus Christ, because of who he is and what he's done. And James, right off the bat, tells the readers... I'm not going to come to you as physical authority. I'm coming to you in a spiritual authority. And the spiritual authority in which I'm coming to you is, yes, I'm the half-brother of Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Master. And I can do nothing else but deliver this message to you with urgency and unction. What do we call that today? If somebody has urgency and unction and, and they're trying to get something across, what do we call that? Passion. 
They're on fire. They're, they are moved by this. And, J- and Jude is so moved by what the Holy Spirit is putting in his heart that he's writing, and he tells us expressively how he's writing. He says, uh, look at verse 3. This isn't our text today. We're going to get to this. But he says, Beloved, all together, I was very eager to write to you. I'm very passionate. I'm very excited to write to you concerning our common salvation, but I found it necessary instead to write to you, appealing to you, to contend for the faith that was once delivered to who? So who's Jude writing to? The Christians. He's writing to saints who have lost their passion, who have lost the urgency. They've lost the unction of sharing the gospel with other people. And and they've lost their passion for contending for the faith. And they've sat back and they're kind of like, you know, we're just just going through life now. We're just doing life with Jesus now. And and, and we're, we're all okay. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. And Jude is crying out what? We are not okay. This is not okay. And the authority by which I'm writing to you is not the half-brother of Jesus, but as Jesus is my master, I'm writing to you these things. Now, would it have been enough for him to have the authority of being the half-brother of Jesus? Wouldn't that give a little bit of weight to understanding the message of Jesus? Yeah, I, I, I mean, who would know him better than his brothers maybe, Right? Yeah, before he rose, that wasn't the case. But somewhere along the line, Jude has become so passionate, so understanding of who his half-brother is, that now he is a slave or a servant of his half-brother. There has to be a leader. There has to be a leader. And the leader is going to be defined for us here. Check out what um, Jude doesn't base his authority at all on the physical relationship to Jesus, but it is a spiritual one. He says that he is the slave. The term is used to describe a relationship of absolute dependence, total commitment, and ownership towards the Lord. The word kurios is Lord in the Greek. So this implies an unconditional surrender and resolve and an absolute submission to the master. You know, we, we've talked about that in, in different messages. How the Lord Jesus Christ, he, he's not asking you to join his team. He's asking you to fully surrender to him. Salvation is a full surrender of one's will for God's will. For your life for his life. Your thoughts for his thoughts. It is a full surrender of giving one's life to. And Jude says, I have not only done that, but I know that you have done that too. That you have fully surrendered. And I wanted to write to you concerning our common salvation, but I wasn't privileged to do that. Instead, I'm writing to you to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. Let's look at some verses here that talk about this as well. We're going to use our concordance now and, and go to, we're going to chase some words around the Bible, right? Kind of get an idea of what they mean, okay? So the word that we're going to be chasing, well, you'll figure it out here as we go. Let's look at Matthew 20 and verse 25. Let's see what that says. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, what's the next word? Kurios. They lord over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. So secularly speaking, when somebody wants to be recognized as an authoritative figure, what type of leadership do they use? 
if they're lording it over them, what are they using? Positional power, right? Positional power. Because of who I am and because of where I sit, you are subservient to me. So, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them because they're in control and their great ones exercise authority. Tell them what to do, right? So, the word lord there is the word we're chasing. Look at 1 Peter 5 and verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. So now we're comparing secular mindset of leadership to biblical leadership. It's not positional authority, but it's being an example to the flock. Not domineering over somebody. Uh, let's go to Deuteronomy 34. Let's see what the Old Testament has to say. It says, Moses, a servant of the Lord, died in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. Who is Moses? Uh, what was Moses' position in leadership? Servant. Servant to who? Servant of the kurios. It's not kurios in the Hebrew, but it's the same word. Same word used again. So Moses, being the great leader that we view him to be, the leader of who? What people? Israel, right? The leader of Israel did not dominate from his position, but he served the Lord and he served the people and he led them rather than demanding they follow. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. How do, how do shepherds lead sheep? From the front or from the back? My sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me. Worldly leadership says, I have a position, respect the position, do what I say, don't ask questions. Biblical leadership says, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow what God says. Let's go together. So here, Jude says this, I could have come in in a lordship way, in, in a curious way, as an authoritative mouthpiece, because James is my brother, and Jesus is my brother, but that's not how I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you as a servant of Jesus Christ, as a slave of Jesus Christ, with a message that's burning within me. And I want to talk about our, our common salvation, but I can't do that. I've got to come to you and say, we need to contend for the faith. We need to contend for what we believe in. So Jude is telling us, number one, Jesus is our leader. Jesus is our leader. I'm a servant of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. And because Jesus is, by the way, who's the main character of the entire Bible? Jesus. And, and if you're following God's word, what's going to happen to you as you follow God's word? You're going to change. Because the Bible changes people. So Jesus has to be our leader. If Jesus is your leader, then this book is written to you. The very words in this book are written to you today by virtue of preservation. So a physical relationship, James is or Jude is telling us this, a physical relationship, not a person, not a church, not a family, not a denomination, a physical relationship will not benefit you in terms of getting points with God in heaven. What gets you points with God in heaven? But without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's faith. It's contending for faith. Contending for truth that God is looking for. 
becoming a bond slave to Jesus Christ. So this morning, is Jesus a master to you? Or is he something you add to your already busy plate? Is his word something you can take and leave? Or is it something you have to have? Is there anything that you would not do, you would not endure if Christ asked you to do it? You see, the standard for the New Testament when it comes to leadership is servanthood. The greatest among you will be his servant, slave, doulos. Same word used to describe Jude. Or Jude used to describe himself when it came to his Lord. I'm a slave, I'm a servant, I'm a doulos. So in the church age, if you're going to serve somebody, then, then servanthood is the standard for the church today, and that's done by means of what action? How do we serve others in the church today? Well, we do it through discipleship. We do it through discipleship, where one person comes alongside another person, and we disciple them into what God wants them to be. So the act of discipleship today is the very spirit by which Jude is writing his book. He's saying, as a servant or slave of Jesus Christ, in serving Jesus Christ, I want to come alongside you today, and I'd like to talk to you about salvation, but I can't do that today, because we really need to talk about contending for the faith. So James is using all the authority, or Jude is using all the authority he has to try to express to us the unction the need for what he's about to share with us. So by the way, he gives three credentials there, doesn't he? Look back at the text one more time. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, and he's what? The pastor of Jerusalem. So we know three characteristics of James here he uses. And none of those physical attributes does he use. He emphasizes which one? The spiritual. He could have said, as the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, he doesn't do that. Because the real leader is Jesus Christ. So he submits himself underneath the leadership of Jesus Christ. And then he reminds us, second of all, not only is there the leadership of Jesus Christ, but number two, there has to be some soldiers under the commander, right? If you have a leader, you must have what? Followers. He's leading somebody, right? So we have to have followers. And verse 1 tells us the recipients of the letters are believers, but they're believers in three ways. They're believers in three ways. To those who are called, beloved in God, kept in Jesus Christ. Do you see them? So there's three things. The first one is called. He places the word called at the end of the sentence for emphasis. This is the calling of God that is on every Christian's life. This is not the call to ministry. This is the call to being the family of God. So if you're called and you're in the family of God, you've been called in the family of God, this is written to you this morning. He places the word called last. carries the connotation of selection. God has chosen you. You have been called. You have been selected to represent him. The second word we're going to look at, or phrase we're going to look at, is this, that we are beloved of God. What does, mean, what does beloved of God mean? Well, it's the Greek word 
Agape. Agapao is the word here. So you are loved unconditionally. You are called by God and loved unconditionally by God. So what bad thing can you do to get kicked out of his family? Agape love is what kind of love? Unconditional. So if there's a condition in which you can lose it, what is it? It's not agape then, it's flow. And that's the difference. And you want to see the, those two words used biblically and in context and in authority? Look no further than Peter and Jesus. Remember Peter was out fishing? Peter, if you love me, if you love me, agape, feed my sheep. What does Peter say? I, I don't love you that way. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. How does Peter reply? Agape, second time. Can't answer it. Because do I love God unconditionally? What has he already done? He denied Jesus three times. Where? When he was being tried. But the third time, Jesus lowers the standard. Peter, do you phileo love me? And what is Peter's reply? Lord, you know all things. You know I phileo love you. And what does Jesus say? Feed my lambs. Lowers the bar, lowers the love bar, and Peter replies in affirmation, yes, Lord, you know I love you conditionally. And is he accurate in his statement? Because I would argue you're the same way. I'm the same way. We love him because he... Yeah, we're conditional lovers. He's unconditional. So he says, if you've been called, that is, you've been selected by God, and I have given to you my love, unconditional love, all right, second one, and then the third one, if there was any way you could lose it agape style, that's fine, you can't. But then the third word is what? What's your Bible say? And reserve for who? The word reserved here means to keep, to not be able to lose, to not be able to get lost. So if you were lost, you were found, how do you become lost again? Can't do it. And see, this is why we got to teach the Bible today. Not people's opinions, not people's thoughts, or not their feelings. What does the Bible actually teach? What does it say? Because it says what it says, and it means what it means. Observation, interpretation, application. This verse in Jude is actually not just teaching that you can have salvation and know you have it. It's teaching that there's a double security built into every believer. You are loved unconditionally by God, number one. So what action can you do to lose your salvation? Nothing. And then you are kept by Jesus himself until what day? The day of his coming. So if you are unconditionally loved and you are kept, how do you lose that? Who's doing the loving? Who's doing the keeping? God. Let me ask you the most basic, fundamental, theological question ever. Okay? Really simple question. I don't want to insult your intelligence, but I'm going to ask it anyway, in case there's somebody who doesn't know it. Does God change his mind? He's the same yesterday, today, 
and forever. I am God, I change not. Why would God change his mind about your salvation then? If he's calling you, if he's keeping you, and he's loving you, how's he going to change his mind? This is, this is like a simple question. Not playing scripture, not doing anything fancy, simply reading what the Bible says, observing what it says, interpreting what it means in context, in the context of where it is, is Jude doubting his salvation? <laughs> no, he's not doubting. If anything, he's double, tripling down on it. He says, not only as a half-brother of Jesus Christ do I know that I'm called, I'm kept, and I'm loved, but as a Christian, I know that I am called, I am kept, and I am loved. And by virtue of you being Christians today, do you know what Jesus Christ is doing for you today? He's calling you, he's loving you, and he's keeping you. Now, I wish this was the only passage that said that, don't you? Let's, look at, let, let's take our concordance out now and let's chase some words. Let's take these three words, called, loved, and kept. Let's translate them to Greek or Hebrew and let's start chasing them through the Bible, shall we? Let's, let's begin the, the observation stage. 1 Peter 1.5 says this, who by the power or who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed when? What's it say? In the last time. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time? Before or after the rapture? So you're going to be saved until when? Before or after the rapture? You're saved now. You are being saved. You were saved in the past. You're being saved now. And you will continually be saved after the rapture, right? So let's, let's look at another passage. Philippians 1.6. Let's read it together this time. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to bring it to completion? To finish it. It's done. And what's he going to finish? The work in you. Well, if you could lose it, then what did he not do? He didn't finish. It's not complete. It's not real. And if God can't keep your salvation, then why do you think you can? If God, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all, all the attributes that he is, well, don't trust Philippians. Let's go to John. John 10, 28 and 29. Let's read this one together. And I give to them... That sounds pretty secure, right? But check out the next verse. So is that single security or double security? Just asking. If you're secure in Christ alone, that's pretty good. But the Father who is greater than who? The Father who's greater than Christ has you 
And there's nobody, not even Jesus himself, can snatch you out of the Father's hand. That's pretty powerful words. Let's see what else John has to say about this. John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has what? What has he given you? Yeah, us. Those that are saved. Those that have believed in him. But he will what? Raise it up when? Didn't we read that somewhere already? Didn't we read that somewhere? How about Ephesians 1.4? Let's go even deeper. Let's keep chasing the words. Even as he chose who? He chose who? That means you're called. He has called you in him before when? That we should be what? And blameless. Before who? By means of what? Love. Agape love. He chose you before the foundation of the world through agape love that you should be blameless and holy. Have you heard that somewhere before? Let's keep chasing. Let's keep going. 2 Timothy 1, 8, 9. I don't want it to be just one person, John, or one person, Paul, or one person, Peter, saying these things. These are all the writers of the New Testament saying this. 2 Timothy 1, 8, 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saves us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our what? But because of which he gave through who? When did he do that? Think about it. Right there it is in a nice little nutshell for you, right? He saves us, he calls us, he keeps us, and he loves us. Let's go a little deeper. 1 Corinthians one twenty four. Love concordances. But those who are what? Called. Both Jews and Greeks. Who's that leave out? That's Jews and Gentiles, right? Everybody. Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So, but to those who are called. The word called there, key word. And he called everybody. How about 1 Corinthians 1.9? God is faithful by whom were what? Kaleo, called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're called into fellowship with God. How about Romans 1, 6 and 7? Final one I'm going to give you. Including you who are to belong to who? To those in Rome who are and loved and called. Grace to you and peace from our God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord there is kurios, one we've already looked at. So we see here, as we chase these words through the Bible, the Bible doesn't peel away layers of the onion. It puts more layers back on the onion. In other words, as we look at Scripture, as we expound Scripture, we're not losing momentum, we're gaining momentum. The Bible's saying the same thing over and over again. It's using the same words over and over again. It's telling us the same theology over and over again. Why would it do that? Because this is going to be a point to contend for the faith. This is where the attack's going to come from. It's going to come in the area of questioning God's love, questioning God's ability to keep, 
and questioning God's ability to call. Now, if I could compromise God's call, God's love, and God's um, ability to keep you or sustain you, and I can get you to doubt your calling, what are you going to do for God? This is where Satan's going to attack. And this is why James is reminding the believers, as you contend for the faith, guess what's going to be attacked? Guess what they're going to question? Guess where the fiery darts are going to start coming in from? So let's dig a little deeper. Or let's interpret this and apply it a little bit. If you're a Christian today, and you're a recipient of God's call, then God had called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, and you are to walk worthy of the calling in holiness and purpose that he's called you to. So the question this morning is, number one, do you have a sense of calling from God? Has there been a time in your life where Jesus Christ has called you into his family? Number two, if that's true, then you are the object of God's unconditional love now. You are the object of God's unconditional love towards you. Unboundless love. And we can, it, it, we can say without any doubt, God loves us today, right? We love him because he, there it is. And no matter what happens, the love of God is constant and unfailing. He fails not. And we can never lose our salvation if we really have it. Because we're secure in Jesus Christ. He keeps us until the day he comes. So Jesus himself is guarding, is protecting and preserving you both now and forever. That's what the Bible teaches. What it actually says. So when we go into battle, we have to remember that we are loved by God, we are called by God, and we are kept through Jesus Christ. So number three, let's look at some resources that he gives to us. Because God gives us some resources in verse 2. Check out verse 2 with me. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So he says, I'm James, the half-brother of Jesus, but I'm not coming to you on the, as the half-brother of Jesus. I'm coming to you as a servant of God to deliver a message, to contend for the faith. And as you contend for the faith, remember three things about yourself. That you are called, you are loved, and you are kept in Jesus Christ. So as you go into battle and the fiery darts of Satan begin to fly and they start to question your salvation, they start to question God's love, they start to question whether or not you're actually eternally saved, know for sure that these things are nailed down in your life because that's where the attacks are going to come. But now I'm going to give you three more things that are going to help you or three more characteristics that are going to help you in the day of battle. And these are the three things that we're going to use to actually contend for the faith. He's going to give you, right in verse 2, he's going to give you what you need to contend for faith if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. He says, number one, I, Jude, am going to give you three resources in the form of a prayer. I'm going to pray for these things into your life, that these will be true of your life, and that they would be multiplied as you daily grow in Jesus Christ. That not only would these things be evident, but they begin to grow more and more as you grow more and more in Christ Jesus. So you already got them listed there. Let's define them, shall we? The first one is what? Mercy. 
God wants to provide in the fullest measure his mercy for your life. Now, I find it interesting mercy is mentioned here without its twin brother. Who's mercy's twin brother? Where's grace? He goes right to mercy. What is grace? Grace is not getting what we deserve, right? It's, it's not getting what we've earned. Let me give you a reason why he goes right to mercy here. As a believer, what do you already have? He doesn't need to introduce grace to these people again. What do they already have? But what are they lacking? Where is the attack? What are they going to need? As they're being attacked, what are they going to need to go forward in battle? Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. So he says, as you're going into battle, you're going to need all the mercy that you can get. By the way, this is the only greeting in the New Testament in which mercy is used where grace normally sits. And because he's writing to believers, he's already understood that they understand grace. Now he says this, as you go to contend for the faith, you're going to suffer. And as you suffer, you're going to need mercy. You're going to need mercy in your life as you contend for the faith. Jude next prays for peace to fill all the believers. He says, may mercy and peace. This is not the peace that, is, that comes in external circumstances. As Peter was writing in his writings, he's sitting in a jail cell himself, and he says, I'm writing to you as I have peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the same peace that he's writing about. It's not peace as in I'm comfortable where I live, but this is an internal peace. This is a calming peace. This is a confident peace that says, I can rest in the sovereignty and goodness of God as I go out into a hostile world to introduce people to Jesus Christ. He says, I'm at peace with that. There is a calming, there is a calming effect that the gospel gives me that I can go out and I can contend for the faith and not be anxious, not be worried, not be scared, but I can go out in peace and I can present the gospel to other people. Thirdly, he prays that love would be given to them in the fullest measure. That it would be consistently realized, experienced, and showered around them. It was like, it's going to take a lot of love, isn't it? To go out and confront people that are teaching false doctrine. It's going to take a lot of love to go out and confront sin, immorality, heresy. You say, love? Yeah. These people are about to do the battle for the souls of men and women, and they need to care about those people before they can reach them. You see, if we don't love the lost, we're never going to reach them. If we don't love people enough to give them the gospel, we're never going to give them the gospel. But what is the problem with us and our love? It's conditional. We'll love the world when they love us. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. If you're waiting for that, it's never going to come. And by the way, the love here is the motivation by which we do ministry. We go into the world because the world needs Jesus Christ. And we love them enough to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Let's take these words down and let's look them up in the Bible. Let's, let's chase them around. Mercy, peace, and love. Let's see what the Bible has to say about these words. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be... Right? Who can be against us? 2 Corinthians 2.14 But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and though... And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him where? I thought we only did it in the church. Everywhere. 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are far from God and have overcome them. Or you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is greater, he who is in you is greater than who? He who is in the world. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God in the peace of God, which surpasses what? How in the world can they go through that and not be, and not be upset and not be mad? How do they do that? What do they have? They have peace that's found in the sovereignty of God. They know who God is. They know what he's like. Peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Jude says this, I pray that as you contend for the faith, that you have a peace as you take the truth out into a world that doesn't want to hear what truth is. I pray that there is a peace, there is a confidence and an understanding that God is the one who is going to protect you and take care of you. Matthew 5, 44 and 45. Let's read this together. But I say to you, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So we're to love our enemies. Why? Because God does. Because God does. Now figure that out in your brain. But wait a minute, who were you before you were saved? An enemy of God. So as you enter a spiritual battle, trust that whatever happens is an extension of God's mercy and a thing that could and should be much worse than it for us than it really is. Because we already have grace and we have mercy. This is going to help us to live gratefully in everything that happens. Your daughter gets diagnosed with diabetes. Man, that really stinks. Praise to God, she's still with us. You know? In whatsoever state I am, Paul said, let me therewith be content. Where was he? In prison. We've looked at that prison cell he was in. Anybody want to go there for the 4th of July weekend? A little vacation? No. We can have peace because we know the victory is Christ. We can have peace because we know the battle is the Lord's. Then love, the love of God can flow through us like a river, helping us to love the unlovable, forgive the unforgivable, and do the impossible when it comes to human terms. But what's absolutely possible in God's terms. So when we're fighting a spiritual battle, you're not going to be able to do it in your own strength. You're not going to be able to do it in your own power. You will fail and fail miserably. But like every other part of the Christian life, when you take it by faith, you believe the words of Christ, then 
you can have success. Trusting God to provide the resources, trusting the strength, trusting his strategy, and leaving the battles to be fought by him, we can have victory through Christ Jesus. So, observation, right? Observation, let's, let's, let's recap and let's do OIA here in a real nice little package for you. And all of you are going to be like, Pastor Joe, why do we have to go through all the other if you just had three little things that we had to remember? Well, remember the eyes, remember the feathers, remember the feet, remember the claws. We have to look at all the individual parts before we can appreciate the masterpiece. Now let's look at the masterpiece that God's painted just in the first two verses of this book. Just in the first two verses. By observation, I, Jude, am writing a letter as the half-brother of Jesus, who really is my Lord spiritually, to the threefold believers who are called, beloved, and secured in Jesus Christ, who are in Jerusalem and the surrounding area in 68 AD, after the death of Peter, but before the sacking of the temple in Jerusalem. I'm writing to call up the mature believers of Jesus to defend the faith and the truth that is in his church. There are false teachers who are misapplying spiritual truths that are being promoted by those who appear to be spiritual, but they're not. This is a letter to the called, beloved, and sealed to contend for the faith and protect the truth within the church. Now let's interpret the passage. Like in 68 AD, we too are living in times where truth is being attacked. It's being attacked by those who state they follow Jesus, but they're teaching truth that does not come from God's word. They look good, they sound good, but they're teaching and preaching that which is not truth. Even partial truth is not truth. And this is exactly what Judas is calling the believers to action. He says we need to promote and speak truth. We do not need to attack liars, but teach the real word of God to counter the false narratives that are in the world. And if you're a mature believer, then the truth of this passage is your call for action. It's your call to stand up. And if you're called, you're loved of God, and you're secure in Jesus Christ, then you must follow your leader. You must follow your leader and be a good soldier and contend for the faith. As you contend for the faith, God will give you his mercy, his peace, and his love as resources for the calling of sin and others and leading them into a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ based on Christ's calling, his love, and his eternal security that is found in him. Same characteristics. So by application, what do we do? Jesus Christ and truth are what Christians are called to protect. However, we are to use mercy, peace, and love to reach false teachers. You walk up to them and tell them they're idiots, not going to work. You're stupid for believing that. It's not going to work. Mercy, peace, and love are the ingredients in which we're going to have victory in reaching false teachers. So we can ask the question, why don't we see a lot of false teachers being reached today with truth? Well, how many Christians are taking mercy peace, and love to go talk to them. We want to attack the person rather than... Remember, our spiritual warfare is not against flesh and blood. It's against what? Principalities and powers. 
What do they respond to? The Word of God. So we need to confront with the Word of God. You see, we are not the ones who convinces them that, it's, that their way is not God's way. That's not our job. Our job is to tell what the Bible actually says. Share what the Bible actually teaches. What it actually means. What it's trying to convey. It's God that convinces. It's the Holy Spirit that uses the Word to change them into the image of Jesus Christ. And if this is true, then we are called to help them study the Bible. We're called to help them read the Bible. We're called to help expose the truth to them. Allow them to read the truth for themselves. And when they hear the truth, the truth will what? Set them free. Just as if you're here today and you're a Christian, you were set free by the Word of God. You see, it's not our cunning words. Paul said many times, I didn't come to you with cunning words and craftiness as the world comes to you. I came by the power of Jesus Christ and the word of God. And you know what? Today, if we're going to confront the same false teaching in our time, we're not going to do it by calling out people and names. We're going to do it by sharing truth. The truth of God's word. And they're going to say, well, that's your private interpretation. no. I used observation, interpretation, and application of God's word, which is what the Bible tells us we have to do. The Bible is not of any private what? Interpretation. There is a clear, defined meaning to every word in God's word. And using the tools that God has given to us today, we can find out what those words mean. The problem is most people won't do the homework to find out what the Bible actually says. And what is it easier to do? Study it for yourself or let somebody else tell you what to believe? We live in a culture that wants to... Don't tell me why it works. Just tell me what I need to... That's a very open door, isn't it? How many have gone to YouTube and found out they were wrong? It's easy. Three bolts and you, you can do this too at home. And you crawl underneath your vehicle and you're like, I've got seven. It looks nothing like what I just saw in the picture. You see, God never intended for us to reach people with trendy sayings, fun activities. He designed it to be built on the truth of his son. That's it. And the truth of his son supersedes trendiness, time, and culture. And if it's truth, then it's true in any time, any place, and any culture. Is the word of God truth? Is Jesus Christ truth? He supersedes time. He supersedes trendiness. And he supersedes culture. Because the name of Jesus is mentioned in every culture of the world today. The truth is known through all the world. And you are holding in your hands today a Bible or an app that has the Bible on it because God preserved his word not just for everybody else, but he preserved his word for you. That's the God we have. Jude says, I would like to come to you talking about your salvation, but rather than talking about salvation, let's talk about the fact that since you're already saved, let's do something with that salvation. Let's do something that is worthy of God, that's worthy of Jesus Christ, the one who I serve. And if Jesus Christ is worthy of your time, efforts, and talent, and his mercy, and his love, and his grace is enough for you, then you know what? This book, this, what's written in these pages, with these next words that are coming after these, 
are for you and to tell you how to go out and how to know who a false teacher is, how to contend for the faith, and how to reach them for Jesus Christ. Don't attack them. Speak truth. But speak truth with mercy, with peace, and with love. Guess who's called to do that? You are. I am. We all are. If we're called in Jesus Christ. So what are you going to do this week, Christian? What are you going to do with the truth that you now have by means of Judas, the half-brother of Jesus, the brother of James, the servant of Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that just in two verses, Lord, we can find out all these truths to be self-evident. And Father, I pray today that as we begin this study, as we unlock the truths of your word that are coming forth, and Father, I pray that each person will be reading through the book of Jude as we go through this together. That Father, they would see the truth of the, the aproponess of this book to our day. As much as it was in the day that it was written in which there were many people saying the truth, that they knew what truth was, and they were speaking truth from God. But not all were speaking truth from God. There were those who were speaking truth from their own adaption of God and their own interpretation of God. And Lord, you've given to us your revealed word. You've inspired it, you've preserved it, and you've given to each of us that we can study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that need not to be ashamed, but able to rightly divide the word of truth. So, Father, help us to speak the truth when it's in season and out of season. Help it to rebuke, reprove, and exhort us to all righteousness so that we might be thoroughly furnished. We might be complete in you, lacking nothing when it comes to sharing our faith and living our faith in a world that doesn't want to know what truth is. And Lord, there is a desire in our world for truth, and there is a need in our world for truth. And Lord, I pray that we would be like James or like Jude in this passage, where he was convinced who you are. He had peace about your word. He, he had mercy. And then he had love to go forth and share with us the urgency to contend for truth. And Lord, may we go forth this week and do the same for your glory, for your kingdom, and for your will to be done. In your name we pray. All God's people said. Thank you.